0: Good morning. My name is Brandon, as she said, one of the pastors here at uh, Sojourn Heights. We are in our final week in a, uh, our series of the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 um, Corinthians is part of what we call the New Testament, so the Bible is essentially broken into two categories. There's the Old Testament before Jesus came, and then the New Testament uh, after Jesus came. New Testament, 1 uh, Corinthians is part of that New Testament. And it was written by a man named Paul. To a church that was about five years old to, to address two um, kind of key issues. One was the surface issue, what was sitting up on top, and then the other was the deeper, more undercurrent issue that was going on. The surface issue is that they were divided, the church was divided. But underneath that, and the undercurrent underneath that was that this young community, this five year old church, were taking their communal cues on how to live. How should we as a community live? And they, they were searching for answers more in the city of Corinth than they were in Christ. And today we hit chapter 16, the final chapter in the letter, and I will tell you up front that I feel strangely emotional about finishing this letter. Um, and so today is going to serve a bit as a uh, recap of uh, the letter. And as it is, since it is, I am going to today break every rule in the preaching, every preaching rule in the book And since I am, I need to set some expectations. So here is Preaching 101. Um, Take a passage, take a text, pull out a theme, a theme that's in there, a point that's in there, and then let the passage just kind of unfold that one theme for the sermon. Or um, take a series of passages and do the same thing so that either way we do it, we, we see our particular need for Jesus and how Jesus is the ultimate and eternal solution to all of life's problems. So for example... Uh, If you were here last week, we said because of of the resurrection, we can be both realistic and optimistic at the same time. That's an example. And so today, while we are going to see our need for Jesus and him as the eternal uh, solution to all of life's problems, we are not going to have one theme. We're going to have four. So it's essentially like four sermons in one. Congratulations. Why are we doing this? Because chapter 16 is a bit of an administrative or Uh, Christian living recap tag on at the end of the letter. But hidden inside this conclusion, hidden inside this conclusion are some themes from the letter that re-emerge. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at it like this. We're going to let these four themes re-emerge, and then then we're going to call them this, Paul's Four Hopes. Paul's Four Hopes. The author of this letter, his four hopes for the church in Corinth, and therefore... His hope for us and his hope for you. And at the end, we'll, we'll say, in light of the letter, in light of all of it, as we finish the series, what, what, what would Paul want for us? If Paul were here in the flesh, we just read his letter. What is it that Paul would say, hey, in light of this, in light of this conclusion, what, this is what I want for you. Sound good? We're doing it, so you can respond with yes. And so here's Paul's first hope for the church in Corinth, that they would be an others-oriented people. They will accompany me. So here's the situation. Paul Paul is writing this letter back to the church in Corinth, and he says, hey, listen, here's what you guys need to do. You need to be setting money aside right now every week uh, to to then be collected and sent to the church in Jerusalem. The church in Jerusalem was uh, a church that was of a lower economic status. They were more financially strapped than the church in Corinth. There's two things that in this collection of money from the church in Corinth to be sent to the church in Jerusalem that we need to see The first one is this. This was Gentiles giving to Jews. Gentiles giving to Jews. If you don't know what a a Gentile is, think a non-Jew. So you essentially had Jews and Gentiles, and a Gentile was anyone who's not a Jew. And listen to what D.A. Carson says, because this Jew-Gentile, it was not just the religious lines of the day, it was also the ethnic lines of the day, the racial lines of the day. This is D.A. Carson. Listen to D.A. Carson and think about how similar ancient first century culture was to modern culture. We're not that different. Normally, the Jews sent gifts to fellow Jews in Jerusalem. Right out of the gate. This is Carson. Cultural analysis, first century. Normally, Jews sent gifts to Jews. First century culture, we take care of our own. Jews, we take care of other Jews. But the fact that the Gentile churches collected money for Jewish Christians showed the nature of the gospel, which could break down the decisive racial barrier. See, what did not happen in first century culture was Jews taking care of Gentiles, Gentiles taking care of Jews. That was a ethnic wall, a racial wall that you did not cross. You did not cross over that wall. It would have been parallel to someone saying today, here's how I think the world should work. It would have been like someone saying, hey, I'm Asian, I think Asians should take care of Asians. I'm white. I think white people should take care of white people. I'm Hispanic. I think Hispanics should take care of Hispanics. I'm African-American. I think African-Americans should take care of African-Americans. And Paul is stepping in and saying, no, no, no. Jesus breaks down every wall that divides people, every single one. And he goes farther and he says, the depth with which Jesus breaks down racial barriers makes its way all the way to your wallet. I'm going to say it again. I feel like that needs to sink in and I'm not sure that it did. So I'll say it again. The depth with which Jesus breaks down racial barriers makes its way all the way to your wallet. That's what Paul is saying to them. Why there are no elevated races, no elevated ethnicities in the body of Christ. There is one elevated man and it's not us. It's not us. Jesus breaks down every wall that divides. But then there's a second thing we need to see. It says, "Each one of you, put aside something and store it up as he may prosper." The, the little phrase "as he may prosper," it, it's it's a difficult phrase to. Um, it, it's easy to interpret, difficult to translate, which is not that uncommon uh, when translating from Greek, which is what the New Testament was written in, into English for us. Uh, but another translation, the NIV translation, translates it like this: um, "Set aside something in keeping with your income." Paul's point was talking about giving, in the words of another commentator, is that your giving, what you set aside, should be proportionate to their economic status. Should be in proportion to your economic status. And some of us in this room are going to push back at this, and we're going to feel a little angst over this, but we need to hear it and receive it from here. Because while Paul doesn't get into specifics here, while Paul doesn't get in and and break down um, this percentage or that percentage or that percentage, his premise is this. With increased income should come increased generosity. With increased income should come increased generosity. And the pushback some would have is to say this. uh, I I worked hard for what I have. I worked hard. I I, I worked hard in school. I worked hard in college. I worked hard in my graduate degree. I, I worked hard for what I have. To say increased income means increased generosity, that doesn't seem fair to me. And I I am not in any way gonna question your work ethic, that you did work hard, I am confident that you did. But let me ask you a question. Did you choose when and where you were born? Did you choose to be born into a family who could provide you with means to the kind of education that you had? Did you choose the time in history that you were born? See my point is this, if you were born uh, in the year 1380 to a mountain village in Afghanistan, you would simply not have had the opportunity to um, uh, acquire some of the abundance that many of us have been able to acquire. Point being, all that you have is by grace. All that you have. All that you have is by grace. In fact, the breath that you're using to say that's not fair is an act of grace. All that you have is a gift of grace grace. Paul's point here is that we should be living such an others-oriented life that it, it's the kind that crosses both ethnic and economic boundaries, boundaries that culturally are typically not crossed. But where would that kind of motivation come from? Here's where. Philippians 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Here's where Paul's motivation came from. It came from Jesus who eternally possessed all that you and I could ever need. All, listen, all that you truly and eternally need is presence with God. Jesus had it, and he let it go, emptied himself, Came a servant, came in human form, and was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The most privileged man who has ever walked the earth went to the cross and died to give it away. This is where that motivated others, or it's where it came from. So what does it mean for us? Let's, let's be a community of people who are willing to cross boundaries that others don't cross. Let's cross the ethnic and economic boundaries and see Jesus break down walls that divide people in us. Let's be a community where we give our lives and our money away for the good of someone else. This is Paul's first hope, that the church in Corinth and therefore us would be others-oriented to the degree that we give our lives and our money away for the good of others. Hope too, hope too, that we would trust to God and we would do it courageously. Let's keep reading verse 5. Paul will visit you. That's not, Paul's not in there. I will visit you. After passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you, or even spend the winter, so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend time with you, if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Now verse 13, be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. This is Paul saying, hey, listen, I, I want to come to you. I, I want to come. Church in Corinth, I, I want to come and I want to be with you. But I don't want to just be passing by. I, I want to be able to come and like just be there for a season. Actually, just spend real qu- like quantity, quality time. I just want to be there with you. I don't, I don't want it to be I show up a few hours later. I've got to repack my bags and then move on. But in the middle of it is this little phrase, if the Lord permits, if the Lord permits. This is Paul saying, this is what I want, but I'm going to trust God with what happens. This is what I want, but I'm going to trust God with what happens. And I think that for some of us, our anxiety, fear over what life is going to be like or what we have or what we don't have would really be undercut if that little phrase if the Lord permits, really took hold of our hearts. With our jobs, if we could say, this is what I want, but I trust God with what happens. With our children, our marriages, our house, this is what I want, but I'm gonna trust God with what happens. But then in verse 13, then in verse 13, there's a little phrase, act like men, be strong. Now, on the surface, just reading it in English, it it sounds like this is a call to watch MMA. Call to be a fan of MMA, which like I honestly don't get MMA. Like when the blood starts, I'm out. I can't take it. This is not a call to have a gym membership and scream in the mirror. If you're a mirror screamer at the gym, that's fine. It's it's okay to do that. You're just not biblically commanded to, to do that. This is not a call to watch MMA, it's not a call to spend money on a gym membership. Here's what this is. This is a call to courage grounded in trust. Listen to this. Act like men. That little phrase. Act like men is a frequent command used in context encouraging people to act with courage and strength in obedience to the Lord and with confidence in his power. See Deuteronomy, Joshua, First Chronicles, Psalms. Act like men, be strong, has nothing to do with physical prowess. It's a call to courageous trust in God, to trust God with everything that you have, to trust him to deliver you, to sustain you, to provide you, provide for you. Why would Paul include this in the closing recap of the letter, because the church in Corinth wasn't doing this. They weren't doing this. There was something that they were putting their hope in, their trust in to provide the life that they wanted, but it wasn't Jesus, it was their city. It was their um, status in the culture and community of Corinth. Here's the thing. You and I, like the Corinthians, we are trusting something to provide the life that we want. There is something in your life that you are looking to saying, my functional trust is in you to give me the life that I want. Every one of us does it. The question is not, do you trust in something? The question is, what do you trust in? And Paul is saying here, trust the Lord. And it's not, listen to me, it is not trite Christian ease. It is the mantra of the Christian life. Trust the Lord. The Lord. Where would Paul get where the motivation for this come from in Paul? Matthew 26, 39. This is Jesus. And going a little farther, he, Jesus, fell on his face and prayed, saying, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Jesus, just before he would go to the cross, fell on his face Let that sink in for a minute. Jesus fell on his face and cried out, Father, I don't want this. I don't want it. If you can let this cup pass from me, let it pass. But not my will, but yours. Staring death in the face, Jesus looked at the Father and said, Not my will, but yours. He chose to trust. Does this mean for us? It means let's be a community motivated by Jesus and obedient to the Scriptures who trust God over Everything and with anything. Over anything, with everything. Let's be people who look not to our house, to our job, to our, you fill in the blank, to our family, to be the source of security and the life that we want. Let's trust God's kind and gentle care for us. Let's believe that, that God is a good, good daddy who looks you in the eye and says, I love you because I love you because I love you. Yeah, yeah, I I know the pain that you've been through, but I love you, because I love you, because I love you. And let's trust out of that. Let's trust him with anything and over anything. Let's trust him with our hopes, our dreams, our desires to get married, the hope for what our family might be like, for what our kids' lives might turn out to be like. Let's hand them all over and say, not my will, but yours. Not my will, but yours. Hope two, that we would courageously trust God over anything and with everything. Hope three. Hope three. Unity. Verse 10. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you. For he is doing the work of the Lord as am I, as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace. That he may return to me. For I am expecting him with the brothers. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers. But it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Verse 15. Now I urge you, brothers, that you know that the household of Stephanas were the first converts in Achaia. And that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these and to Every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus because they have made up for your absence, for they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. The churches of Asia send you greetings, Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, there's obviously a lot happening in this, this passage right here, but, but a couple of things I want to see. One, five times. Five times he uses the word brothers. Familial language. Brothers and sisters. That was the connotation then. Brothers, my sisters. We are family. Point being, and then he said to greet one another with a holy kiss. Greet each other. Christians, you should be greeting each other with a holy kiss. Does this mean we should be kissing one another at the door on the way in? I don't know, maybe. No, I'm kidding. No, no. This was a cultural first century greeting, somewhere between a handshake and a hug, to modern context. But his point was that there is a unity in the church, in the global church, in the broader body of Christ that's meant to transcend geography and culture. See, in this couple of verses here, we we get a window into how the early church sought themselves. We get a window to the early church thought of themselves first as brothers and sisters. First identity together, family. That's why we talk so much about church's family here. It's why we organize everything we can to pursue and live church's family. Because their first identity was brothers and sisters, we are family. Their secondary identity was Asian, Corinthian, etc. And I think Paul would say, Hey, here's how here's how I might want you guys to apply this. I want you to see that you have more in common with, you are more united together with, meant to be more one with a Middle Eastern woman who does not speak your language than someone who went to your college just because they went to your college. You're meant to be more one with somebody from another part of the world who doesn't speak your language than you do, than you are someone who went to A&M or UT or Oklahoma or fill in the, your college just because they went to your college. Where would Paul get this from? Why would he believe this? First Corinthians ten sixteen. This is speaking about the communion table. The cup of blessing that we bless. Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Here's what Paul is saying. When Christians all around the world on Sundays come to the table, when we come to the table, we eat the bread, we drink of the cup, by a mystery that we do not understand, we are participating in the body and the blood of Christ. And then when Christians all around the world come to the table on Sundays by a mystery that we do not understand, there is one bread and therefore one body because there is one bread. We are coming to the one table is what he's saying. Your weekly rhythmical event that your corporate worship centers on is what unites you, Paul would say, to the broader global body of Christ because there is one bread, there is one body. I think this is, this is where the ancient creed gets one holy Catholic and apostolic church. One, one, one holy, one universal one church and our prayer my prayer for this is that this posture this posture might mark us and it might shape how we, our posture toward other churches in the city of Houston we have not, we have not cracked the code on what it means to be faithful and biblical as a church, we are doing the best we can to be as faithful as we can just like the other churches are and it's a privilege to get to learn from them, hope three that there would be a unity in the body of Christ. And now hope four, love. Love, verse 14. Let all that you do be done in love. And then the very last words Paul writes in this letter. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Here is the marker of a Christian. You want to know what the marker of a Christian is? Here it is. Love for Jesus. Love for Jesus. That is a response to love we received from Jesus that flows into love for one another. That's why he says, let all that you do be done in love. Let all that you do be motivated by love. You want to be an others-oriented kind of person? Be motivated by love for the other. Be motivated by love for the other. You want, you want to be the kind of person willing to cross boundaries that don't typically get crossed? Be motivated by love for your neighbor. Be motivated by love. And the last line of this letter really is remarkable. It really is. This church, if, if, you, if you don't know, the, the church in Corinth was highly dysfunctional. Highly dysfunctional. Uh, they were suing one another. They were allowing just simply unspeakable things to happen inside their community. They were dysfunctional. And he finishes the letter like this, my love be with you all. The affection of Paul, the affection Paul has for this imperfect, dysfunctional people is simply staggering. Why would Paul, What would Paul have this kind of, where would he get this kind of love from? Matthew twenty-two thirty-six. 36 teacher. This is people asking Jesus a question. Which is the great commandment in the law? And he, Jesus, said it to him. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these, the two commandments depend, all the law and the prophets. Here's Jesus' summary. Jesus, hey, what How how do you live a faithful and a fruitful Christian life? How, How do I do that, Jesus? Here it is. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor. Let love be what motivates, guides, drives all that you do. And this is not generic love, the key phrase, the Lord. This is not Jesus embracing all roads lead to one place or generic love for any God out there. It's not what the Bible teaches Love for the Lord your God and love for your neighbor. This is how Jesus sees faithful Christian living. Faithful Christian communities marked by love. Love for God, love for one another, love for our neighbors. May that be true of us. And in prepping this, I just could not shake. I could not shake why Paul would finish the letter. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus, this dysfunctional, broken church, how he could finish the letter like that. And and here's, here's how Paul could finish that letter. Paul, in other places in the New Testament, wrote things like this. I'm the chief of sinners. I'm the chief of sinners. Of all the sinners out there, I'm the worst. I'm the worst. I'm the one who, before I was a Christian, was murdering Christians. Now, Romans 7, I keep doing what I don't want to do. Why can't I stop? I am the chief sinner of all the sinners. I'm as bad as it gets out there. And yet, and yet, I know what it's like to experience sin swallowed by grace. I know what it's like to experience sin swallowed by love. I know what that is like. And Paul, I think, is saying to them, listen, as messed up as you are, and listen, you are messed up. I just spent 15 chapters on it. Same can be true for you. But Paul, we're here Let me tell you what he would say to you. And Paul would look you in the eye and say the same is true of you. Yeah, you are messed up. Of course your life isn't perfect. Of course there's categorical areas of dysfunction in your life. Sin is serious and powerful and affects all of us. But listen, sin swallowed by grace, not swin, sin swallowed by love. If you are curious about Christianity, If you're curious what the message is, what it is that we believe is on the table for you, here's what it is. Sin swallowed by grace, grace purchased through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Sin swallowed by love, the love that sent Jesus into the world to die for you. That is what is on the table for you. Paul's four hopes for the church in Corinth, others oriented generously willing to give away our lives and our money for the good of others, marked by a courageous trust, unity, and love. And so what would Paul's hope be for us? As we finish this letter in First Corinthians, what, what would Paul's hope be for us in light of this? I think it would be that we'd be marked by all four. Simultaneously, in an equal measure, we'd be marked by all four, others-oriented, trusting God courageously, united, and marked by love that we'd be marked by all four because in all four of these, the church can be, we can be the alternate community, the alternate society. We are meant to be where all are valued, no matter your economic status, no matter your ethnicity, all are valued in equal measure all the time. We can be a place where the love that we're all looking for, the love that we're all on the hunt for is found. It's found. It's found found, the life that we want, found learning to follow Jesus, others-oriented, courageous trust, united, love, fueled by love and acceptance that you have in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. If you want to know what the Christian life is meant to look like, what we hope for our church, our community here at Sojourn, if you want to know what the ideal parish is meant to be. If you want to know what the good and the beautiful life that we're all after, what it looks like, these four are a pretty good place to start. Others oriented, courageous trust, united, and love. Let's pray. Father, thank you for 1 Corinthians. What a sweet gift it has been for me, for us to get to go through. I pray that we would be this kind of community. We want to be this kind of community. Make us more and more into this kind of community, others-oriented, courageous trust, united, marked by love. Would that be us? Would it be us? We know that we can't just force that. We need you to do it in us. We need you to do it for us. That's what we're asking you to. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.